Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. Hey, what's going on, profilers? It's been a long time. We're going to have to switch the name of this to uh, Procrastinating Pain, but we promised another episode. We're doing another episode. We're also doing a live stream. Hi, guys. Um, and today will be the final uh, finisher of the Hillside Strangler story. What a journey it's been, sir. <laughs> and then uh, after that, we'll switch over to the conspiracy theory slash uh, cold case I was talking about. And then, uh, yeah, from there, I think maybe, I'm pretty sure we're going to hop on that bandwagon and start doing some Ted Bundy. Maybe, just maybe. So... I mean, really, that's what we're going to do. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of eyes on him, especially with the Netflix movie like we talked about on the previous installment, man. So, yes, stoked to be back at this with you. All right, let's position you guys in a place where I don't have to hold you. Yeah. Yeah. What should we... Oh, oh, widescreen. Kind of? Sort of. Rotate your phone. It's all on the phone. Anyway. You can kind of... It's good enough to get the glare from my glasses. So anyway, uh, yeah, so new, what's new, what's new, what's new? Um, my baby's due in August. Nice. So Noah, we, we've agreed on Noah Edward. So Edward is the middle name of my dead. middle brother, man. Pretty it's a good strong, name, yeah, dude. A yeah, name and, and my papa's name. He Well, he went by Eddie, obviously, but yeah. Uh, well, was, uh, my Rest great, his soul. My great-grandfather's middle name was Edward, and then my uncle was Edward, and his son was Edward, and I didn't get the Edward name, so I was like, oh. And Jaden almost had it. Jaden was almost Connor Edward, but we agreed on Jaden Connor, so uh, final kid. We're going to go ahead and do the great-grandfather's middle name, so it's pretty cool. And then uh, other than that, um, just working and looking up murder stuff. That's, that's pretty, you know, and raising babies. Not all that in one. Making year. beats, though. Yeah, well, I, I do some stuff. Yeah, so. you do. But, uh, Lots of awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's new with you? How are you doing? Uh, well, we got uh, through Comic-Con somehow, some way. Did our panels there. All of that was cool. Uh, gearing up here in June for the Mad Monster Convention, yeah. which is, uh, what, today is the 21st. So it is the 28th through the 30th of June in Fountain Hills, Arizona, Mad Monster Arizona, all kinds of amazing guests from Robert Patrick, who played the T-1000, to okay. Cassandra Peterson herself, Ms. Elvira, and <laughs> a slew of other awesome horror celebrities and different artists and stuff like that. So we are going to have a booth. We are their official press for the event, so we're going to be running all the panels, recording everything for them. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but they're setting us up with a hotel and the free booth and all that jazz, which is dope. And then uh, we are also going to start doing a showcase for the horror show at Phoenix Film Bar, which is in the Roosevelt Art District. So on July 7th, that is our first uh, first uh, hosting slash showcase. It's for a movie called Dare Inside, which is like home invasion, the strangers slash like found footage kind of okay. thing. And we saw it back in April at the Phoenix Film Festival's International Horror and Sci-Fi Film Festival, which is like their scary branch of the fest. And so, yeah, July 7th at Film Bar, we're going to be showcasing that to horror show hosts. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Day before that, July sixth at Joe's Grotto, Kyron's playing a show. Kyron is playing. Be playing with Fooder and Argonaut. Yeah, a lot of the really good. Uh, Excited for that. Free show, free show. But then uh, you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be gracing us with our with our presence. July nineteenth, uh, yeah, July nineteenth. Yeah. We'll be playing with uh, Separating the Seas, Ocean Harvest, and a slew of other bands. So that'll be pretty sweet. Yeah. yeah so it's such busy weeks ahead of us, man. Yeah. yeah. Nice collaboration, and then somewhere in between, we'll actually do some research on Ted Bundy and try to get a couple more. We keep promising you more episodes a month. It's it's gonna happen. It's just 
I mean, every time we get on, we talk about what we've done, and it's never a short list. We've always got a million and one things going on. Uh, it's it's crazy, and I, I, I never thought when I was a kid that I'd be this busy as an adult. I thought it was just going to be smooth sailing, have all the money in the world, not have to do a damn thing, and it turns out you got to work for it. That's... You know, nobody really warned you for that. I always think of something my dad used to say to me all the time as a kid, man. He's like, I'm always fighting the clock, son. I'm always fighting the clock. And I never really understood what he meant right. until I got older. And then I'm like, there's just never enough time in every day for all the things I aspire to accomplish. And I can only imagine you with the multiple children and, you know, all all those responsibilities far beyond my own. So Yeah, but it's a totally different type of time consuming. I mean, with kids at least. I mean, especially with the two-year-old. Like, he's just so damn funny. Like, he just runs around like a drunk midget all day. And it's he's he's hilarious. I was FaceTiming him earlier, and there wasn't even any words said. He's just making noises with his mouth the whole time. <laughs> like we had a twenty-minute conversation of just noises, and you know we knew we knew what each other. Was. Oh, that's how it started out with cavemen, man. And well, then, yeah, uh, and then the, in, the the intellect elevated. So <laughs> yeah, maybe we need to get more cooked meat in his diet. But yeah, no, it was, it's cool. It's a lot of fun. But nice, anyway, nice. so. For the Facebook Live that was supposed to happen 45 minutes ago. Dun dun dun! Hey, we got on. You said eight-ish in the post, so I so we got on there. Ish. Yeah, I purposely put ish. Yeah, you have nine, to. Um, As someone who uses the term "ish" with my times all too often, you know this from experience. Right. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Well, lucky uh, we got in within the hour. So, um, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to start, as I told you before, I wanted to start doing a, a month-end review of uh, just crazy cases in Arizona. Now, there were a couple where the timeline didn't seem to mesh, but I feel like they're worth mentioning anyway. Sure, why not? Um, at least little tidbits of it, just stuff that I'd heard through, through news or little articles. But uh, I was telling you about the Phantom, the uh, child serial killer from the 70s that got released on parole and then went right back into prison in January. I'm thinking of the Chappelle show skit where it's like, I can see in my crystal ball, they're going to let you out. And Oh, wait. A couple months later, you're going right back in for the same <laughs> shit. <laughs> right. So what it is is there was uh, some young girls, uh, seven and eight-year-old uh, girls that had been um, obviously murdered, molested, the whole thing. You know what usually happens in the stories that we tell here. Um, and then he did, I believe, uh, 45 of his 35-year-to-life sentence. And then was released, and then when his parole officer went, and he's called the Phantom. You can Google it, look it up. It's crazy to think that we had a serial killer of that caliber in Arizona. I had no idea. But if you go back and you look up the Phantom, Tucson, Arizona, right, Tucson, of course, um, you'll find that he got released, I think December was right back in in January, or maybe November. So anyway, parole officer shows up to his apartment, routine check, and uh, he steps outside to meet her as opposed to letting her come inside like he typically does. And so, of course, she's going to go inside. So she goes inside, and I guess laying there sleeping in either the living room or one of the rooms or something like that is, uh, is his girlfriend's seven-year-old niece. And right there was like, boom, red flag. Um, do not pass go. Uh, he immediately... Definitely not collecting any yeah, money, let alone 200 doll hairs. <laughs> immediately ended up right back in prison. Um, but I, I heard something about it recently, and that's why I started looking it up and trying to figure out you know, what was going on. And... Uh, I, I couldn't find anything past January. So as far as I know, he's still in prison, and that's that. And then the other weird case that I found, and I don't know if it happened in May, but it's still worth mentioning, was that 94, I believe, 94-year-old woman who uh, they found the body of her son in the backyard. Turns out that she killed him. And she killed him because... What did Junior do? <laughs> he threatened to throw her in a home, which is the one thing he made she made him promise not to do. And when questioned about it and asked, you know, well, how, you know, how did you feel when you did this? Her response was nothing, which, well, 
I've heard of scenarios like this before. <laughs> that's, that's, that's insane. So, he was going to throw me away and knock the key, so I shot him. <laughs> but there, I mean, there's always something going on in Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix is a huge, huge city. There's always something going on in Arizona. There's a lot of open space. Top five of, in the country, man. Yeah, a lot of open space for, for craziness to happen. Plus that heat, that heat does something to you. But uh, Summer crimes, man. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to do a month in review. Um, they're not all going to always be murders, but it's kind of what we lean towards anyway, so that's probably how that's going to go. But uh, I have three cases that I know for a fact happened to me, and that's what we're going to cover right now. So, the first one, if I can read my handwriting, uh-huh. uh, Rodney Puckett. <laughs> I like that last name, Puckett. Hmm. All right, that's so, why I say Puckett. Right, so uh, he told Eloy, Arizona police detective Edmonds that his wife, Linda Puckett, age 74, had died at the couple's hotel in El Paso, Texas. Now, Puckett placed her in the car. This is how she was found. Okay, so he's in Eloy, Arizona. He's he's driving through, like, a cafe, like I was telling you, like a little... Not a fun place to be. (laughs) And, uh, And the waitress at the diner actually noticed a set of legs sitting up in the passenger seat, and the man who looked you know, naked in, in, in the driver's seat. And she was like, this is already kind of odd. So she happened to tell Edmonds, who was at the diner at the time, what she saw outside, and he went outside to investigate. Turns out he had his 74-year-old dead wife upside down. Front seat? In the front passenger seat, yeah. <laughs> so feet were the head I shouldn't be laughing. This is not a right, funny I mean, matter, but just I, the, the ridiculousness of it alone. Right. I mean. So so as it goes, I guess they were on vacation. They were staying at a hotel in El Paso. And a, uh, a security camera caught him walking in with his wife and then caught him leaving with just a large suitcase. And as I told you before we started recording, there is a Tales from the Crypt right. episode that has Tracy Lords in it where she <laughs> is bitchy wife and husband, well, let's say she leaves in a suitcase. But that's about the extent of it. It's <laughs> a little more severe than some Irish sunglasses. But, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so when the autopsy report shows that uh, she had some minor, I don't know what minor blunt force trauma would be. I guess maybe like a contusion or maybe, yeah. a, a, you know, like a severe concussion. Mm-hmm. But like I told you before, I mean, possible speculation is, you know, she could have had a heart attack and fell. Just She could have just fell out of bed. You know what I mean? And he could have just wanted to finish this run with her. Like, you know, this was our final vacation. Let's do this together. Or, I mean, 70 could be senile. I mean, you have no idea what's going on. You know what I mean? There's, there's, and there, I, did, I couldn't find too much more information on it. So I know that he isn't holding and they are questioning him more. Um, but... I'm really curious as to see where that's going to go from there. Yeah, I was about to say, there's just a lot of weirdness surrounding there that. Is. But, I mean, just based on their ages, I, I, I mean, as you mentioned before when we were first discussing this in the production notes, it's like, could this have been something premeditated? Probably not, man. No. I mean, and I maybe even not even spur of the moment. Probably not. Well, <laughs> I, actually, you know, creatures of <laughs> habit is ultimate. Right. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Strange situation, though. But I, I mean, not not necessarily like murder charges or anything like that. But but hey, hey, you, you never know. Sometimes these are beyond kiddie pool deep. So yeah, yeah who I, knows, I, man? I, we just talked about that ninety-four-year-old woman. So who knows what he's, what he's about? But uh, yeah, so that's that's Rodney Puckett. Um, what he was saying though is that in the hotel room, she just became unresponsive, and then she just wasn't there anymore. So that that's his story. That's kind of hmm. what he's having to say. Whereas the autopsy report shows like there could be some foul play. Hmm. So he's in for questioning. We'll see where that goes after that. Well, I'm thinking Gerald's game now, Stephen King, where the couple is getting kinky and one of them falls off the bed, smashes head, dead. Although in their situation, 
uh, the lady Jessie is like handcuffed to the bed when said husband falls off and smashes his head and they're in like a remote place in the middle of nowhere like a cabin in the woods where there's nobody for miles and she's just stuck handcuffed to the bed it's a hell of a book man it's a weird scenario could you imagine being stuck in such such a horrible situation that sounds like insane a really, right really really kinky version of misery and then it just never gets better stevie k man he's a weird guy <laughs> i tell you el ray for the win oh we've got some comments on the uh who, who, who do we have saying things on there can you tell from the side i can't here? read from here man my glasses aren't thick enough can no. you uh, you know what I should do then, since we are... Jamie Fetterman is watching. It says Michael Ice is watching. Oh, what up, Michael Ice? And Priscilla Alatori is watching. I was going to say, one thing that I can do is I can just bring it up on the, on the Facebook myself and monitor the comments while we're doing this, there huh? There you go. Perfect. Yeah. That'd be way better. Great for the podcast audience. We'll just have Hi to fill, fill everybody in and make sure to double down on it all. Yeah. So that was the first case. And then the next two actually take place in Arizona. So, Holly Bennett, 46, is facing first-degree murder charges after she admitted to murdering her mother. Now, according to Sergeant Ben Hoster, uh, dispatchers received a call around 2 p.m. from someone at an apartment complex on 64th Street in Osborne, which I believe that's right there by... Uh, that's like South Scottsdale, so that's like ghetto Scottsdale. That's around all those. Which is still. That's around all those titty bars and stuff. Yeah. Oh, is that by Gilligan's the midget bar? Uh, um, somewhere in that vicinity. I mean, it's like north of where we've played the Rogue before. Okay. With Chiron, okay. it's a little north of that, but. Now she was saying that their neighbor asked them to call, but it ended up being her. Brenda later told the dispatcher that she had killed her mother, uh, Sharon Simmons, and so officers responded to find Simmons dead in her bed, like she said that they would find her. Now, Brennan told police that she suffer, uh, suffocated her mother. Now, the mother-daughter pair have actually had uh, lived together for multiple years, but they've been having uh, they've been having domestic disputes. Uh, domestic disputes. Um, police have been called multiple times. Like it's been an ongoing thing. No clear reason why she actually decided to smother her mother. That, I wasn't expecting that to rhyme so well. No, I was uh, going to say, those are rap lyrics right there. Yeah, so. but, uh, but she did, nonetheless, and now she's facing murder charges. Word to held. the mother smother. Straight out of, <laughs> of Snobsdale. But now she's been taken into custody and she's awaiting her conviction. So that's uh, story number two wrapped up right there. Uh, story number three, again, Scottsdale, Arizona. Now, I wanted to call this one um, Fifty Shades of, uh, and then I lost it at that. So it's not quite Fifty Shades of Grey. I think that might be what the chick thought going in. And then it just kind of, it 
So we're going to go ahead and just cover it. Now I'm trying to think of a clever name, God on, damn it! Quick, oh, quick, come quick, on, quick. come on. Fifty Shades of... Fudgicles. No, Fifty I'm Shades not, of Hate! I got nothing, I dude. Yeah. All right, anyway, so the whole Fifty background. Shades of No Place to Live? Yeah, well... I have no place. Yeah. No, that's not, it's not good, guys. It's not good. All right, so Jason Smith, which that sounds like a fake name. I, don't give I know a guy named Jason Smith. That's such... That's so... Uh, that he, does some, he does something called Sinister... Uh, Sinister Cinema Review. <laughs> okay. So Jason He's a friend Smith. of ours. Maybe this I hope him. it's not the same guy. We'll find out. You kinky son of a bitch, Jason Smith. <laughs> so, so Jason Smith held his uh, girlfriend in a sex dungeon for two months, from March 3rd to May 6th, uh, wow. fully equipped with a cage, um, all kinds of devices, cat and nine tails, like you name it, stuff stuff you see in, in whatever you watch. Not necessarily whatever you watch, but you, you know what I'm getting at. Michael Ice, that's what you watch. Uh, let's see. Uh, police say that the victim reported being assaulted against her will multiple times. Now, besides the cage, he had multiple torture devices, but she did, however, sign a contract giving him permission to use, and, and this is a quote, as much force as he wanted against her. Okay? That's the thing. I have had friends who I've worked with at the hotel who have said, oh, yeah, I totally had sexual meet-up with some guy I'd never met before, but we signed contracts before because there was going to be whips and weird shit involved, and you're just like, say what? Right. Well, is this People are into word? some strange stuff. in the fine print? Scottsdale I mean? makes sense to me for something like this to transpire there. I, you know, I didn't want to say it out loud. Now, <laughs> just like a true psycho, he, he, he held up his end of that deal for sure, uh, beating her for... Uh, even just using certain parts of the house, trying to use any form of technology whatsoever in the house, she would get beat um, so badly that she had a broken wrist, she had multiple broken wounds, multiple open wounds. Um, I mean, when I broken wounds, broken bones, uh, she's just, I mean. Where do you damaged. draw the line? I mean, I, I, I guess with that sort of force and infliction of harm, but some, I don't know, people are into some weird yeah. stuff, man. Like, who am I to judge, right? Well, the, the cra but the craziest part was that. Judgment's dude, reserved for the Lord. The dude actually had, like, a dungeon-style cage structured in his house, like, for her to be trapped in. Scottsdale, it doesn't surprise me. Right, and so the way she finally escaped is, I guess, he was gone for a certain amount of time. Like, and there's always that. There's always, like, oh, they left for a minute. It's every time they're off getting McDonald's or something like that that, something that the person escapes. Don't leave. If you're going to pull shit like that, don't leave. Don't leave. Or there's another podcast that I listen to where it's like, if you're going to do something that severe, you have to kill the victim. I'm not recommending it. I'm not recommending don't it. Don't condone that, sir. No, not at all. Don't, don't put saying, yourself in that, in that limelight. <laughs> uh, you know, back, back it up, back it up, back it up. Uh, but, yeah, so anyway, um, she even went into an epileptic seizure, and he did nothing. Just watched her lay there, you know, flopping mm -hmm. like a fish. Like, it's, it, it got really bad. But he had left the house for a certain amount of time, and she found a hidden key that he had lying around the house and made her way out through the backyard or the fence and finally got a hold of the police. Now, the last thing that I heard is that since it was a contractual agreement, Dundee, like, and then she also tried to uh, redact her statement and and not press any charges, saying that's her boyfriend. When asked why she put herself through so much, uh, just I mean, torture. I don't know what else you would call it. Uh, she said that she had nowhere else to go. I had no place else to go. Which, holy shit, man, that is sad. And if it, and I'm not gonna get on this whole political rant thing or anything else right now. But We've done it on here before. I'm though. telling you, I'm telling you. <laughs> downtown Phoenix, not more than I think five years ago, shut down three different homeless shelters. On top of that, behavioral health clinics, mental, you know, mental health clinics. Like, I, I don't know where the funding is going, but now we have people being beaten in cages because they have nowhere else to turn. I'm just saying, maybe, 
maybe a little bit of reform is in order. I mean, we have a lot of privatized prisons. I mean, we had the whole Arpaio fucking siege that we had for years and years and years and years. Which no one ever thought was going to end, but he right. just didn't, he, he got his hands too dirty over too long Absolute a period of time. Course, man. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm just Absolute saying, power. Good maybe it's time to really, really, really take a look at these things. But then there's going a little too far with security. So quick side note. In New York, they recently started in public schools this summer, as of this month in June, they started putting cameras in every classroom and all over the campus doing facial uh, facial recognition uh, technology. Yeah, like in the Child's Play movie I watched last night. I was thinking more like Minority (laughs) Report, but yeah. So so now, and it's it's not just here either. I guess they've got crazy, uh, crazy, crazy high-powered cameras in Yuma that they're putting in all the schools out there. It's almost $100,000 per camera, and each school is getting almost $120,000. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's almost, yeah. No, it's like $90,000 per camera, $90,000. I don't know, it's some crazy expensive thing. Anyway, but they're putting 120 cameras in each school in the entire Yuma School District. Like, they're just dropping money on security and technology, but none of it's going towards education. None of it's going towards the teachers like it's really supposed to. I mean, how far is that 20% really going to go? And that's the end of my rant. That's rant it. rant ended. That's <laughs> it. That's I'm just saying, maybe, maybe take a second look at some shit. So wow. that's what I got. Or maybe pay school resource officers a little bit more. I don't know. But that's or, where we're at. Or maybe people should just be more responsible and figure their stuff out. You know, just <laughs> I, I think it all started with participation trophies. So, mm. <laughs> but that's Shouldn't it. Shouldn't give them out. That's all we got for right now. We're going to go to actually recording the podcast proper now. Um, and uh, you guys are just going to have to listen to the rest Wednesday. In the solo audio form? Well, I mean... T- Provided how busy the rest of the weekend is, I mean, either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, one of those yeah, three days. Yeah. Gonna drop. Nah, nah, nah. Like Somewhere around we, we are going to try to be more consistent with our episodes. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys so much. Um, and if nothing else, maybe we'll try to at least do something like this a couple times a month. If, you know, one, one good audio recording and then maybe a couple live things. If it's just me or if it's just him or if it's both of us. We'll figure something out, but we're going to keep doing the month in review, let you guys know what kind of crazy shit happens out here in the desert. Content, and, uh, content, content, man. The one thing I didn't touch on, Recent news-wise was that Virginia Beach shooting. Mm. I didn't do too much looking into that, and we had just covered a mass shooting on the last episode. No. And I don't... The fact that we have a new one that we could potentially that cover. That soon. Like, every month. You know what I mean? That's another <sighs> thing to look at. But I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I actually did did read an article just the other day, did though, you? that uh, Arizona is, like, one of the only states, in, or, or maybe Phoenix is one of the only cities, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to remember, where police don't wear body cameras in, like, the entire nation. It's kind of crazy. Really? Yeah. And now they're getting Food for thought. And now they're Food all for thought. news right now? Yeah, it just totally like clicked in my head when you were talking about the facial recognition stuff in, in New York. And I'm just like, huh, on the front page of the Arizona Republic that, you know, I'm like the only places in the entire nation where cops don't wear the, don't have that sort of accountability. Dun, dun, dun. We support law enforcement, though. Yeah, your mom was a cop for years. She was over 30 years at Phoenix PD, but she was in parking enforcement. So a little bit different. She got shit on by a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah, you'll have that, and that's a really small little tiny cart to shit on. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, those right. little, those little four, she, Man, she was on a three-wheeler back in the 80s. That shit was rough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, that's that's the show opener, and then uh, you guys can catch the rest of the episode about the actual case, the Hillside Strangers. This is uh, the third episode. This is the last episode, and then we go into the conspiracy theory uh, cold case after that, and then uh, on to some Ted Bundy. Quick side note, though, while you're here. The last few episodes, the last few cases, you know, at least the Richard Chase and this one, there's been a little, like, little tiny tie-in between people. You know what I mean? Like how Richard Chase is actually a fan of Hillside Stranglers. I thought that was interesting. And then I wanted to do the Alphabet Killer, and that's kind of hint, hint. That's what's going on next, and that kind of ties dun, dun. into this. Preview, preview. But also, 
out of the Hillside Stranglers, uh, Detective Frank Salerno was uh, on the Richard Ramirez case in the 80s. So he helped catch continuity. Multiple. Damn. Yeah. How so, about them apples? And Applesauce, bitch. I mean, as, as much as we talk about Arizona, all our cases so far are happening in California. So. Uh, California. Yeah. It but is. Again, thank you guys. You guys have a good night. And then uh, stay tuned for the episode Wednesday. We'll say Wednesday. Maybe Thursday. Next week. Hopefully Wednesday. Bye, y'all. Peace. Boom. All right, now we know how that works. Yeah. And it's still going. All right, guys. Well, for those of you who are listening on the audio format, thank you so much for hanging out with uh, all that going on. Thanks for sticking around. We appreciate you. The words of Pac, you all appreciated. Yeah. Or to quote uh, Child's Play, this runs for Tupac. <laughs> Only those who have seen the new Child's Play movie will get the ridiculousness of that joke. You know, before we really get started, I, I don't like the way the new Chucky looks. Nobody did. Okay, cool. Nobody so, did! So and, sure. and even having him voiced by Mark, the, the Joker, Hamill himself. Mark Hamill's doing the Mark voice? Mark Hamill does the voice for the new Chucky. I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a thing, man. Speaking of case... Dun, dun, dun. I don't know where my case went. I'll be right back. All right, and I'm back. Through the magical powers of editing, he's back nearly instantaneously. So, another thing, there was a complaint about the last episode with the ad rolls. They're right there in the center. We didn't give them any warning at all that an ad was coming in, and one guy was like, it scared the shit out of me! <laughs> so, <laughs> I think we're going to give like a solid like 10-second pause and then get back into it let you know that the ad roll's coming. But that's going to be... Well, those sort of pauses, like you're running to get notes at the perfect time to do those. Perfect. There's the ad roll. Perfect. All right. So here we go. Now, where we last left off was uh, Kelly Boyd. Mm-hmm. Okay. Miss Kelly Boyd. She uh, moved to Washington. Um, the dynamic duo split after he pulled that stunt in uh, Bono's upholstery shop. And he, uh, Bono hated Kenny so much and wanted him gone so bad that he convinced him to go have a normal life with his wife in Washington. And he yeah. just had the kid and everything. Right, and correct. So, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I don't know if that was a good thing. Like, well, you know, why don't you just go back to Washington, just have a normal life, just take care of your kid, go be with your wife, get out of here. You know what I mean? It's almost like, damn, dude, you should have said that, I don't know, 10 murders ago? But <laughs> it is what it is. Well, and we also theorized in the last episode of this that, you know, uh, Bono, after a while, was just not feeling the involvement as much and just not, or, or at least to the depraved levels that some of these incidents were being taken to, you know, right. and so... Yeah. yeah, Bianchi was definitely the, uh, as we discussed, he was he was the murderer, mm-hmm. and Bono was the rapist. Yeah. So that's kind of where that fell into play. Mm. Um, so Dastardly, dastardly duo. <laughs> dastardly acts, we have to say it every single time we do one of these. These dastardly <laughs> deeds. Dastardly deeds, that's it. Ah, fuego, come on. Too so, many destroyed brain cells over the years. Mm-hmm. Where the police really picked up. Now, after Yolanda Washington was murdered, the police, you know, they, they figured that 
there was something happening, but it, like we discussed in the first and second episode, there there wasn't you know too much for them to be like up you know quite up in arms yet until the twelve year old, the fourteen year old, and then there was a fifteen year old, and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah, and then they're finally realizing like there's a lot going on here. Now this story that I'm about to tell is of two different men, okay, and it's two different law enforcements, same city, but two different law enforcements. You have the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, and you have the LAPD. Now, as we've discussed on previous episodes, like with Richard Chase, um, a lot of the times these precincts don't want to work together. Yeah, because they want all the glory of the capture. Correct. They want that collar. Now, the way that these two get caught is a collaboration of not only multiple precincts, but multiple states. It, like... When we talk about like solid detectives, solid police work, solid profiling, the whole shebang, that's what these guys did. And it crossed state lines. It didn't just cross jurisdiction, it crossed state lines. And it was three key men who were like, you know what? This needs to be taken care of. And that's admirable, dude, because it's like if you are, if you're willing to swallow your pride and put egos aside and work together for the greater good of something that has grown far bigger than you probably thought it ever would. You're like, no, we're going to get this person. It's not going to keep going. It's not going to keep going. Oh, shit, it's still going. You know, maybe we need to join forces and actually, you know, yeah, actually work together. Let's work together. Come on, come on, let's work together. So it takes more than a few homicides to get the attention of the people in the city the size of Los Angeles. Uh, murders are a daily occurrence, um, particularly when one involves a person living in a high-risk lifestyle like prostitution, as we're all aware. Now, so when three women were actually found strangled and dumped naked on hillsides northeast of the city between October and early November of 1977, very few people lost sleep over it. That's just the way of the world. That's how it was in the 70s. I mean, that, that, realistically, it's kind of how it is today. Oh, yeah, I mean, that attitude hasn't changed. They're like, well, that's karma for, you know, living those sort of lives, putting themselves in situations with those sort of sordid people. It has that uh, potential collateral damage associated. So Now, when everything changed, however, was Thanksgiving week when we discussed that spree that they went on during Thanksgiving. Um, five, five young women and girls were found on hillsides in the Glendale Highland Park area. Now, these five young women, one of which was 12, another only 14, they were not prostitutes, but they were dubbed nice girls who had been abducted from their middle-class neighborhoods. Okay, now they're up in arms because now it's happening to younger females. Now it's happening to females who aren't in that type of lifestyle. Presumably innocence. Exactly. Now, the term hillside strangler was actually coined by the media, even though police were convinced that there was more than one person. Like we stated before, now we're getting into it. Now, the way that the police figured out, they knew right away, actually, that it was more than one person. When they found Yolanda's body, um, there was no way that one man could have carried the body and, re- and positioned it where they did. And secondly, there was marks. There was marks after, after you know, when your skin's starting to do the thing and absorb everything that touches it, when you, when you start to decompose already. Because the minute you die, you're, you're starting. That's just how it works. Yeah. But they found markings on wrists and ankles and everything else showing that it was two men or at least two people carrying a body. So they knew from jump that, that it was two people, but the media kind of ran with a hillside strangler. You know, Which in some ways is better because then can, can you imagine the like just mass hysteria of a public where it's almost like, okay, there's one rabid animal loose in the surrounding woods by this town, or they know there's two rabid animals in the surrounding... I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like double trouble, man, so... So, on Sunday, November 20th, 1977, L.A. homicide detective Sergeant Bob uh, Grogan was hoping to be able to enjoy his day off when he was called to an obscure area in the hills between Glendale and Eagle Rock. As he tried with difficulty to locate the site, he thought to himself, 
that whoever was using this area to dump bodies must be a very must be very familiar with the neighborhood to even know that this place existed. So they're going as we talked about in the last episode, they would get more brazen. But the first few, they were still trying to hide in, in different areas. But they were still putting them out in plain sight, but they were trying to hide them in secluded areas. Now, the dead girl was found naked in a modest, middle-class neighborhood. Grogan immediately noticed the uh, ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Now, when he turned her over, blood oozed from her rectum. The bruises on her breasts were obvious. Oddly enough, there were two puncture marks on her arm. This is the one that we discussed where they had done the uh, cleaning solutions and all that stuff, the one that Bianchi actually knew. The one that they had abducted, abducted from her home when Bianchi reapproached as a sheriff's deputy. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Okay. The one he had hit on before or whatever, or am I getting that confused with another one? Okay. Yes, that's okay. the one that he had hit on before. Okay. Now, uh, and she rejected him, and so that's why it was personal and all that? Correct. Yeah. Now, uh, Grogan examined the scene. He saw no indication of any disturbance in the foliage, nor any sign that the body had been dragged there. So he made a mental note to himself that the murder occurred somewhere else and a man, maybe two men, had carried her body and dumped it there in the grass. Now, a few hours later that afternoon, Grogan's partner, Dudley Varney, had been called to investigate two homicides on the other side of the same hilly area. The two dead girls had been found by a nine-year-old boy who had treasure hunting in a trash heap. We talked about that, the young boy that found treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the hillside. It was a pretty horrible sight, made all the more grotesque by the decay and army of insects that had taken over the flesh. Of course. Jeez. Now, again, there are no indication that the murders <coughs> had occurred where the bodies were found, nor was there any evidence that the bodies had been dragged there. So small as the young girls were, there was the probability that more than one killer was involved in dumping their bodies on the hillside. Now, it did not take long to identify the girls as Dolores Capita, 12, and Sonia Johnson, 14, Now, both of whom had been missing for about a week from St. Uh, Ignatius School. Now, we discussed that, how they were abducted and everything else like that. Now, the next day, uh, the first that Bob Grogan investigated was identified as Christina Weckler. That was the one that Bianchi knew. Now, a quiet 20-year-old honor student at the Pasadena Art Center of Design. As he searched her apartment at 809 East Garfield Avenue in Glendale, Grogan was overcome by the sadness and then rage. Her effects and her diary showed her to be a loving and serious young woman who should have had a bright future ahead of her. Now, you're going to see as we continue that Grogan and Salerno, Frank Salerno, these are the two main detectives. These two, if they could have just beat these two to death, they'd have fucking done it. Like, of course. These two lose their minds. As and they were LAPD through. or they were Sheriff's Department? Salerno was Sheriff's Department and Grogan was LAPD. So they were the ones working despite oh, the separate... Right. correct. And they and they start working... Separate precincts there. or whatever the proper terminology is? Yeah, and it's and it's, it's so crazy. I didn't I didn't exactly look at the zoning, but as, as I'm reading it and stuff, you find out that it's like this little line right here that nobody actually truly sees because it's on a map that nobody looks at. This is where he would look. This is where he would look. So you see how Grogan kind of came in at the, the Thanksgiving murders. Well, Salerno had the October murders. And then all of a sudden, they both combined, and they're like, okay, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. So, And, I mean, I would assume, okay, one body pops up here. It's under one's jurisdiction. Another body pops up here. It falls into the other's jurisdiction. And then as the pieces start to pile... That's when they realize, okay, this is much bigger and obviously linked, and so. Yep, and uh, so there's little tidbits here about what was going through Grogan's mind. There's a lot of interviews with him, but right here when he found her, you know, he stated that he couldn't help but think of his own teenage daughter. Like he kept going back to his own teenage daughter, you know, and and 
It's true. Even though you have a badge, it's not a shield that protects you from all the craziness in the world. It's not. And in, in this this day and age, not to get political, but in this day and age, it almost At brings, least you're prefacing it each I'm time. Just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying it almost, in, in certain spots, it almost brings the bullshit to your doorstep. Mm. You know? And it's... It's well, yeah, if it hits that close to home, man, that's what can really fuel the, the rage of vendetta and really and then you up gotta, the ante. And then you got to act as if you have that shield. you got to act as if, like, you, you're because you're representing something. So you can't just go all vigilante on it. you got to operate within the law because technically you are the law. Yeah. So, I'm the law! <laughs> respect my authority. Exactly. Now, on November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving, another young woman's body was found, this time near the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. Her maggot-covered body was estimated to have been there some two weeks. Now, she had been strangled like the others, but it was not certain if she had been raped. So it could have just been a quick, you know, one-off, you know what I mean? And there, throughout this time frame, besides the 10 that we know for a fact that Bono and Bianchi did, there were other girls found in similar fashion. And unfortunately, when shit hits the media, there is a lot of, of copycats that happen. I mean, we discussed that with uh, even the Mad Bomber case. You know, you start getting you start getting weird copycats, and it's it's almost like violence begets violence, and it just continues. Yeah, which is one thing a few podcasts ago where we talked about just the amount of coverage and how just giving the emphasis to it and the exposure to it, it gets the gears turning in certain people's heads who might just be on the verge of doing something as opposed to really thinking they could do it and get away with it and whatever. So, fuels the fire, man. It's crazy. Now, the authorities lost no time in creating a task force, initially composed of 30 officers from LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, and the Glendale Police Department. This is where they start to collaborate. Now, like every other task force formed in a high-profile case, the officers were soon overwhelmed with worthless tips and suggestions from well-meaning citizens. There's, I mean, people calling in on their neighbors, people, I mean, it's, it's, and I don't even know if there was any reward money offered. I'm sure there was. Probably. But it's like we discussed with the Mad Bomber case. Go back and listen to the first couple episodes of Profiling Pain. Um, with the <laughs> forgive the audio. Uh, <laughs> but We've made vast leaps and strides. Thank you for that. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but they, they started turning in their neighbors. There's even a couple stories of a woman who had just recently gotten married to her husband who woke up with her husband over her while she had uh, a rag in her mouth. Right. And she called the police immediately, saying that she thinks she married the, the, <laughs> the hillside strangler, right? But it turns out that she had a really bad snoring problem, and he was just trying to, like, get her to breathe through her nose. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So we had cases like that going on. So uh, Happy marriage. Good, good right. luck, guys. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty good start. If you're already using ball gags two months yeah. in, hopefully, you know, don't, don't, don't move to Scottsdale and build a cage, but you'll be all right. Get creative with it. Now, luckily... The, the killers took the holiday weekend off, but that was all. On Tuesday, November 29th, Grogan was called to the hills around Glendale's Mount Washington area. The naked body of a young woman was found lying partially in the street. Now, the ligature marks on the ankles, wrists, and neck all matched the hillside stranglers' MO. So, they definitely have... Now, the reason that there's no evidence being described here yet is because there's no evidence. They're just finding the marks. I don't know if anybody else realizes this, but when we talk about Bono running an upholstery shop, he's used to cleaning and getting everything just mm-hmm. boom. That's something we've mentioned both previous episodes. Right. So yeah. when you're detailing cars and you're paying that, and it's his life, it's his lifeblood. When you're paying that much attention to detail, you can clean some shit. And I don't know if we discussed in the last episode, last episode or not that they actually, uh, at one point, were thinking that it was a cop doing these murders. Now, what we have... I think we touched upon a little bit in the previous episode. Right, and then yeah. they started doing ride-alongs for people in which the... Crazy and also, and also uh, be, 
Which of the two was the one that actually did a few ride-alongs because he Bianchi. wanted... That's right, that's right. Bianchi. Yeah, yeah. Now, keep in mind, because this is going to be a build-up to the actual ending, to the actual uh, trial. So close! He, ah! he had multiple psychology books. He wanted yeah. to be a cop so bad, but he never made it. And he kept doing the, these ride-alongs. Uh-huh. Like, he was, you know... He was really... I think he's the one that was looking for... I don't want to say the notoriety, but that's what it is. He, he was looking for the fame He's also the one who posed as the chair's deputy or whatever yes. to the... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you're seeing kind of this, this the, the, continuation the, the, Yeah, it's, right. it's a pattern of behavior and all these correlations, totally. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, something was different. It looked as though she had burns on her palms, like the strange puncture marks on Christina Weckler's arms. It looked as though the killers were experimenting, possibly with methods of torture. Now, there was also something else that was different. A shiny track of some sticky liquid which had attracted a convoy of ants. If this substance was semen or saliva, there was the possibility that the killer's blood type could be determined. Now, tests on semen found in the earlier victims had revealed nothing. Now, it's not that it didn't reveal anything. What they tested was, um, there's, there's a type of, it's a small population of people. They're called non-secretors. Now, most of the time... We they touched c- upon this a little bit last yeah, time. Yeah, most of the time they can tell your blood type through your semen, but a non-secretor you cannot. But that also narrows down the, the population because it's a small... It's a small. But, I mean, unless you're going to go around having a bunch of dudes jerk off into cups, it's not going to help your case. And again, 1970s forensics, this is where we're at. You I think know? I just filled the cup. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. went from 6 to midnight. <laughs> now, the same day... <laughs> fuck. Now, the same day that the young woman was identified as Lauren Wagner, an 18-year-old student who lived with her parents in the San Fernando Valley, uh, her parents had gone to bed the previous night expecting her to come home before midnight, and unfortunately the next morning the car was found parked across the street, the door opened, and no daughter. So that was unfortunately her story. Now, when Lauren's father questioned the neighbors, uh, he found that the woman who lived in the house where Lauren's car had been parked saw her abduction. Um, Beulah Stouffer, all right, the neighbor. Uh, she was said to be like the neighbor, uh, I don't know what you say, um, crier, uh, how would you say it? Like she was kind of like a, the, the old lady that, that knows everything about everything, watches everybody, reports everything. I mean, she probably went to sleep with, with, a, with a, what are those things called? A scanner at night to listen to what's going on in the neighborhood. Probably oh, yeah, the police band or whatever the heck it is. Yeah, yeah, so she was that. She was a neighborhood watchdog, essentially. Mm. But more of the nosy neighbor. But in this yeah, case... Overanalyzing like, everything, I would imagine. Yeah, right. For sure. We all know the type. Now, she said that two men had pulled their car beside hers, and there was some kind of disagreement, and Lauren ended up in the car with the two men. Now, Grogan went to talk to Beulah immediately. Now, her Doberman barked furiously at him as, she, as he went through the door. She had a big old dog, of course. Uh, Beulah was, uh, um, I don't even know what the hell that word means. What word? Uh, well, she's an asthmatic, but the first word is, who cares? She's got really serious asthma. Now, in her late 50s and almost at the point of nervous collapse, she had just had a phone call from a man with a New York accent saying, you the lady with the dog, he asked her. When she said that she had a dog, he told her to keep her mouth shut about what she had witnessed or he would kill her. Long before the days of Star 69, yo. Long <laughs> before those days. Now, unfortunately for Beulah, when they called and threatened the, uh, I, I don't know if we touched on this or not. Makes you wonder where they got her phone number and all that. The first, when, when Bianchi and uh, Bono started their, their pimping ring in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and they threatened that lawyer that rescued that 15-year-old girl prostitute and actually sent her to Arizona to get away from California. Oof. 
um, when Bianchi and Bono threatened him, he had actually done a lot of cases for the Hells Angels and got those two to get their asses kicked by the Hells Angels. I'm not sure if I mentioned that or not on the, on the first episode. So, But I don't think Beulah was hanging out with a bunch of Hells Angels, so she kind of listened to the threat. Now, Beulah described the killer's car as a large, dark car with a white top. Now, one of the men had dragged Lauren from her car into his. She heard Lauren cry out, you won't get away with this. Now, Beulah was so terrified by the incident that she did not even tell her husband, who had been home the entire time. The horror of the whole thing had thrown her into a violent asthma attack. Dang. Right. So Heavy shiz, man. <laughs> she was sure that there were two men. One was tall and young with really severe acne scars. And then the other one was Latin-looking, older and shorter with bushy hair. Now, she was certain that she could identify them again if she saw them in a lineup. Now, even though Beulah claimed that she was standing at her window when Lauren was attacked, her descriptions of the men were too vivid to have been seen at such a distance. The window was a good 30 feet from the street, so Grogan was sure that Beulah had really been out in her front yard and hid in the bushes when, <laughs> when the commotion began. Otherwise, with her dog barking the whole time, she never could have heard Lauren tell her captors that they would never get away with it. Now, perhaps Beulah would tell the whole truth when and if you know it became necessary. So now, with the abduction of Lauren Wagner, the killers saw the whole city as their cruising around. Sorry, as their cruising ground. Nowhere was safe. At least when the crimes were confined to Hollywood and Glendale, uh, police could identify their efforts in those areas. Now it was a crapshoot. Yeah, but it's nothing safe, anywhere. nothing sacred. Right. Yeah, it's free range, fair game. And nobody had any idea of where to even start looking. Now, as, as, as we go on, eventually every, every police office has the entire city map up. And they're, you know... And it looks kind of like the, uh, almost like... Kind of like the logo of profiling. Exactly. <laughs> and, that's, and, and when they got it, what, what they found out is that dead center of all these things after they looked at the spider web was Bono's shop. Yeah, and we, met, and we mentioned that during the last episode. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, five more victims. This is where we're getting into Salerno. And Salerno is just a bad mofo, man. I can't wait to cover Richard Ramirez and talk more about this guy. Now, the rampage of Thanksgiving week threw into the spotlight three earlier murders of prostitutes or suspected prostitutes beginning in October. This is where we're covering Yolanda and the other two that they had picked up, okay? So on October 17, 1977, a tall, leggy prostitute of African-American descent called Yolanda Washington was raped and strangled, and her nude body was dumped uh, near the Forest Lawn Cemetery. And we've discussed all this stuff before, but now, mm -hmm. we're, getting into, now we're getting into Frank Salerno's perspective. Now... Almost two weeks later, Sergeant Frank Salerno, a detective with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, was called to the town of La Crescenta, north of uh, Glendale area, to investigate the homicide of a woman. It was a pretty grim sight for that Halloween morning of 1977. Now, the naked body of the woman close to the curb in a middle-class residential area covered with a tarp, we discussed that, the one that was by the park, uh, by the property owner so as to shield the body from the children in the neighborhood. Now, the bruises on her neck showed that she had been strangled, she had ligature marks, the same wrists, ankles, and on her neck. Uh, insects feasted on her pale skin. On her eyelid was a small piece of light-colored fluff. And they are like, oh, maybe we can get some information from the fluff. And they got nothing. They got nothing from the fluff. It was just fluff. Now, the body was placed deliberately where it would be found quickly, as though it was a nasty wake-up call to that respectable middle-class neighborhood. There was no indication that the victim had been dragged to the spot where she lay. Once again, just like Rogan, Slayer was like, she was carried by two men. He made the same assessment that Grogan did. Um, 
She was small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds and appeared to be about 16 years old. Her hair was reddish brown and was medium length. The coroner determined that she had been strangled to death around midnight, some six hours or so before she was found Halloween morning. It was also clear that she had been raped and sodomized, which is unfortunately their M.O. <laughs> now, after a couple of days, she still didn't match any missing persons report. Now, Salerno persuaded the newspapers to run a small story on her along with a sketch and a request to contact the police if anyone recognized her. Still, no one came forward to identify her. And that's the worst part about the entire thing is that as they're going through until they got to the uh, the respectable girls or the good girls, you know, or the nice girls, whatever the quote was, um, three, four, five women deep that these guys have done and there's no missing persons report. There's nobody even looking for them because they're not... Nobody's reporting ladies of the night going missing. Well, and even so much that, I would imagine ladies of the night in California, there are so many women who come from other areas of the country, and they're in the L.A. area. They don't really know anybody. They're trying their damnedest to survive, which is probably what pushes them into this sort of work in the first place. So they don't really know anybody. Nobody really knows them except for people that they've, you know, worked for or worked with, you know, whatever, and none right. of them are going to talk. And so they don't really probably don't have friends or any close family or anything in the area they're just out there and they're unknowns and so nobody's going to report an unknown and that's sad man super tragic and, and we discussed how much of a transient city la had become big I mean, time. especially by then so that's you know that you're right that's and it is sad it's very sad because who knows who you know had any idea where their daughter was in another state or four states over oh, yeah. five, or you know or even yeah, if they went to California, yeah, I mean, they're just like, yeah, so-and-so skipped town in Nebraska or Ohio or whatever, you know, and fresh in L.A., can't find work, turns to something terrible like this because they can't find anything else. And so nobody's going to know who they are. Nobody's going right. to report shit. So the prospects of solving this particular homicide were not promising. Salerno's only other clue, the little piece of fluff that he found on the victim's eyelid, could not be identified. Yeah. So let's see here. Uh, a week later, on the morning of Sunday, November 6, 1977, the naked body of another strangulation victim was found in Glendale near a country club. Salerno talked to the Glendale police and recognized the similarities between the two victims. Both he, oh sorry, both had been strangled and ligature marks on their bodies had been dumped with six or so miles of one another. Now both girls had the same five-point uh, ligature marks, ankles, wrists, and neck, and there was evidence of rape but not sodomy in the newest victim. Looking at the scene where the body had been deposited, Salerno was certain that at least two men were involved. There was a sizable guardrail between the road and the spot where the body lay. It would have taken at least two men to lift the stocky victim over the guardrail. Um, and it's evidence like that where obviously, I mean, it would have had to have been a two-person thing. If the body looked like it was, you know, carried in, as opposed to seeing drag marks, as opposed to all, all that other stuff, I mean, that's where two-man operation, obviously, even if it is these smaller, thinner, daintier little women and stuff like that. I mean, So here's the tiny silver lining. Um, this victim actually quickly had a name. She was Lisa Caston, a 21-year-old waitress at the health fair restaurant near Hollywood and Vine. She lived just off of Hollywood Boulevard. She had made a comment to her mother uh, then that she was thinking of turning to prostitution to earn some extra money. Lisa had last been seen leaving the health fair restaurant just after 9 o'clock on the night she was murdered. But they immediately found her name. 
So they're actually being able to put names and faces together and start questioning family and it's just, at least for the questioning part of it, and trying to get whatever evidence you can, they're, they're getting something, they're getting scraps, but they're not getting anything that's really leading them in the right direction, but they're getting more information, at least about the victims. I mean, you can start looking for similarities. Even if it is just a breadcrumb trail, at least you're starting to connect a few dots at least. Right. Yeah. And eventually Salerno tracked down the Miller family and got a positive identification on the first victim. Now, the family was down on its luck and had nothing to contribute about their daughter's friends, unfortunately. Now, until Thanksgiving week, only Frank Salerno of the L.A. Sheriff's Department had known that a serial killer was at work. After Thanksgiving week, it was the top priority for the entire law enforcement community of Los Angeles. Eight victims in the space of two months. The investigation went into high gear, but the killer of killers, killer or killers, took a couple of weeks off. Now, we discussed that uh, Bono's mom, mom had gotten sick ill. and everything, yeah. yeah. Now, in mid-December, police were called to a vacant lot on a steep hillside on Alvarado Street where they found the body of Kimberly Diane Martin, a tall, blonde call girl who had been working for the Climax Modeling Agency. Now, the way that this one worked, and we discussed it... The um, Climax Modeling Agency. Right. Was, Never would have guessed. <laughs> now, what had actually happened was is that Biondi and uh, Bono had actually called this agency to have uh, them send over a girl to uh, an apartment complex. Now this is where he gets so damn brash, is that it was an abandoned apartment in the same complex that Bianchi lived in. Dang. Now they're doing it fucking right at home. Yeah. And the craziest and you part don't shit where you, where you, you're not supposed yeah, to shit where you eat, right, yeah. no pun intended. Yeah. And so, and the craziest part is, is that when the police showed up to investigate that scene, Bianchi showed up I as remember a you mentioned neighbor. It. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the only the only man that didn't that they didn't want to question was Bianchi. They yeah. never imagined him to. How fucking crazy is that? That's still kind of smart on his part, obviously. But I mean, just in, in the same just, right, I it's mean, like maniacal sociopath, and it's just like that the, the, that strange force we use for so much better. Become a spy, you know, do something for America. Uh, so. Anyway, tragic. <laughs> this time the police department had what seemed like two reasonably good leads. Kimberly Martin's last client had beckoned her to an apartment at 114 at 1950 uh, Tamarin, which turned out to be a vacant apartment, as we discussed. Now, the murderer had called from a payphone in the lobby of the Hollywood Public Library in Ivar Street. Now, unfortunately, nothing much came from these leads, and the police did not have any immediate arrests. But things became quiet for a while. There were no more victims in December or January. That's that's when Salerno got or Bono's mom got sick. Now, then in mid-February, there was another victim on Thursday, February 16th, an attractive young woman named Cindy Huspeth, their final victim together inside the inside the shop. Uh, Huspeth was a uh, strangled, violated body, was put into the trunk of her own Datsun, and was pushed off a cliff in Los Angeles Crest. Now, the next day, when the police investigated it was clear from the ligature marks that the hillside strangler was at work once again. Blake focused on the details of Cindy's life and the hopes that they could determine who was with her when she disappeared. Now, Cindy had been a 20-year-old clerk that everybody liked. She hoped to make enough money to go to college and one day and planned to give dancing lessons to help raise the money. Uh, they say she was a vivacious young woman. She had won several dance contests. I mean, she was just a very talented female. Uh, she had been last seen in her apartment building at 800 East Garfield Avenue. She had probably been headed toward Glendale Community College, where she worked nights answering the phone. Now, between her apartment building and the community college, Cindy had been kidnapped in the late afternoon. But we know that she had ended up at the upholstery shop trying to get some work done on her vehicle, and 
that's where her life ended. So nothing for a year and a half. And then we cut to Seattle. So this is the Seattle connection. Dun, dun, dun! Now, the relationship between the LAPD and the L.A. Sheriff's Department had been notoriously bad for many, many years. Petty squabbles, jealousies, uh, jurisdictional issues, the entire oh, yeah. thing. Makes sense, man. But for that year and a half time span, the entire Sheriff's Department, PD, everybody, lost their minds trying to figure out where they had gone, why nothing else is happening. The greater good and prevailed. It's, <laughs> it's almost as if no news is bad news because now how the hell are we going to find them because with the yeah. evidence that we have we can't do anything yeah it's like the bread trail like the, the, the breadcrumb trail it's like it just stops and you're like where the hell and they're just losing their minds now on january 12 1979 the police in bellingham washington were told that two western washington university students were missing the two women roommates karen mandick and diane wilder were not the type of people to take you know, off irresponsibly without telling anyone. When Karen didn't show up for work, her boss became worried. He remembered that she had accepted a house-sitting job in a very wealthy Bayside neighborhood from a security guard friend of hers. Now, when Bianchi moved to Bellingham, Washington for that year and a half after his son and everything else, mm -hmm. he ended up getting a security job. Wanted to be a cop. Had surprise, to surprise. Cop, right? yep, it's about as some, close as he could get. <laughs> some form of authority. Yeah. Now, Everybody loved him. Everybody that they interviewed was like, he's a great guy. He was even a charmer with his with his lady, from what you told me, yeah. man. Like I mean, yeah. A, and everybody just Which shows him. just how just psychotic the guy actually was, that he could get so many people to buy in his oh, yeah. lies, man. Oh, yeah. The same thing with the Red Ripper, BTK, all these guys. Yeah. But he, uh, he started giving himself, like we discussed in the last couple episodes, little allowances. He started trying to do, like, a modeling agency and take pictures of chicks nude and stuff like that. He started kind of, you know, and then he would hit on people. Like, he ended up hitting on Diana a lot. He ended up hitting on, you know, he was doing that. And it, he always kind of played off like, oh, I'm a quirky dad type of thing. Like, he, he was full of dad jokes. Oh, boy. And rape or rage. Every joke is half the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of how it was. Like, I'm just kidding. I'm going to go feed my baby now. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? He, he had, I mean, just a true true psychopath. And it's it's crazy to watch not watch because we weren't there but it's mm. crazy to read like well just to in, it in, envision it playing out man yeah you know it's insane to me. Yeah. now it makes me wonder have they have any tv movies biopicy type stuff has, has anything ever been produced oh, yeah. about these two guys oh yeah yeah, yeah there's there's a, you could find a lot once of we're finished with this coverage i'm definitely gonna i mean maybe that wouldn't hurt to try to review one of those if it was made for TV movie if yeah. there was I mean something like that would be cool to discuss you know, you know maybe it's just a, like a little bonus there was a Mad Bomber bonus movie, episode or something going back to the first episode again there's actually a Mad Bomber movie made in the in the, in the 70s too that I was gonna watch but I didn't mm. so I was like eh, you know one of those things I've already done all the damn research well and those TV films they're often of varying quality but now since you're the expert on this stuff man I mean <laughs> it might be kind of cool to compare and contrast like how accurate they, they actually got it so no, that's not a bad idea yeah so after remembering that uh, she had said that she was going to go house hit with uh, a security guard friend of hers, um, they decided to call the security firm at which he worked to kind of see, like, okay, well, where was he during all this? Um, and he had told his boss that he was at a sheriff's reserve meeting. Right, like deputy sheriff's reserve, you know, da da da, da whatever. And then when they contacted the sheriff's office, they were like, yeah, no, he, uh, he, he wasn't here that night. So now they're looking into him. So now when police found out that the security guard was not at the sheriff's reserve meeting, as he had told his employer, they decided to contact the security guard directly. They found him, 
to be a friendly young man who had skipped the sheriff's meeting because it was on first aid, which he had already learned. <laughs> a little arrogant too, right? Well, of course. I now, wouldn't be surprised. Now, the police had no indication that the two women had um, met with foul play. It was very possible that they had just gone away for the weekend and had forgotten to tell uh, Karen's employer. However, Terry, Terry Mangan, the former priest who was the new Bellingham police chief, was not comfortable with that explanation. Now, this guy, as we get into these cases, as we finish this out real quick, uh, he actually, and it's not mentioned here, so I felt the need to mention it, um, a friend of his in L.A., one of the victims was actually his, his friend's daughter in L.A., yeah. So Damn. It, yeah. So the 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 police chief and in the a, personal connection continues. Yeah, and, wow. it, and cross the state lines. Yeah, that's that's what I'm sizzling. Now, when he visited, when he decided to visit the girl's home, because he didn't like I said he didn't like the explanation. When he decided to visit the girl's home, he found a hungry cat, an unusual situation for an otherwise very pampered pet. In their home, he found uh, the address of the Bayside home where the two of them were to house it. Uh, a close look at the records of the security firm brought up the name of that same security guard in conjunction with the address in which the girls were to house it. Uh. Now, the way that it worked was Bianchi told them that he had a security job there where he's going to change out a security camera, put it up, da da da. And what he wanted them to do was to sit there and house it while he went to go get the security camera fixed. So, no security camera, have somebody there, I'll fix that, bring it back. And he was going to pay the girls $200 for staying there. And they called Two, and, and two hundred dollars back then, uh, man. Four hundred. It was worth four hundred. Yeah, it's serious money. And <laughs> not, right, which should already be questionable. But if you're, but if you're a college student, and you know you're, you're probably living off of whatever you can. Yeah, ramen and uh, natty ice. That's it. All I gotta do is sit in this house. Hell yeah. Two hundred dollars. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? So, it just makes sense that now the thing about it though is that he told them, you do not tell anybody where you are going, and they did not listen. They left notes at their house. They told boyfriends, they told, you know, bosses, like, smart, smart. You tell who you got to tell. Because if a strange man, no matter how nice he seems, tells you, just don't tell anybody where you're going, that's a that's a that doesn't That flag. doesn't sound shady at all. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone in the first place, but, you know, you do weird shit for money. So I, I understand that aspect of it. Now, police also learned that the security guard had used a company truck that same night that the woman disappeared, supposedly to take it into the shop for repair. Now, however, the guard never actually took the truck for its servicing. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, already things aren't adding up. Now, Chief uh, Mangan was becoming increasingly concerned about the safety of the two missing women. He asked the highway patrol to check on the sites that might be used to dump bodies or random cars. Uh, I think we have to consider this as a kidnapping and maybe a homicide. The next step was for the police to search the Bayside address where the girls were supposed to house it. Now they found a wet footprint in the kitchen that had been left a few hours earlier, but there was no sign of the girls or Karen Mannix's car. Um, yeah. So police found a neighbor who had been contacted by a security guard and asked to check on the house each day except for the night that the girls disappeared. That night, the guard told her there was special work being done to the alarm system and he didn't want her to go anywhere near the house. Now, next, Mangan enlisted the help of the news media requesting that they describe the missing woman and the car to the uh, authorities. Shortly thereafter, a woman called about a car that had been abandoned near her home in a heavily wooded area. 
Inside the car were the bodies of Karen Mandic and Diane Wilder. Mm. Both had been strangled. Other bruises suggested that they had been subjected to other injuries as well. Now, while the missing women were sent to the morgue, Chief Mangan ordered the security guard to be picked up for questioning. They needed to proceed cautiously since the suspect was a trained security officer. As it turned out, the security guard gave them no trouble whatsoever when they picked him up. He was a handsome, friendly, intelligent, and articulate husband and father by the name of Kenneth Bianchi. When they investigated his apartment, after bringing him in, they decided to go into his apartment. Here's what they found, and then we'll get into the multiple personality disorder that he pretended to have and his actual sentencing, and then we'll be done. They found, outside of jewelry belonging to Yolanda Washington, immediately connecting him to the Hillside Strangler murders, they also that found... That held on to this stuff, man. Right. Like, oh, my they God, what do. thinking? They also found... Um, <laughs> They found a whole cache full of expensive telephones that he'd been stealing from people's homes. None of them hooked up. He just had expensive telephones. Um, they also found what I would describe as jack rags of an old shirt and an old pair of underwear that they said had been dropping loads into for weeks. Among the weirdest things wow. I've ever heard was <laughs> they, found, they found a taxidermied hollowed-out rabbit that he had been using for masturbating and also a strange amount of crab meat. Crab meat. Right. I have no idea the connection. Nor no, I don't I think there is one. I'm just, that's, that's, okay. Now, said crab meat was being put into a hollowed out rabbit to create I, the, the squishy. <laughs> I have no idea. Now, when he actually got uh, brought in, his wife, Kelly Boyd, remember Kelly Boyd? Remember mother of his child, Kelly Boyd? Yes, indeed. Okay, well, once she figured out that he was definitely going to prison, she was like, but he, but, but he has cancer. He's got lung cancer. Mm -hmm. He's been going and getting treatments for years, you know. And, and here's like, where the bubble is and burst. She, she brought paperwork. He would bring home. He would steal paperwork and bring her home paperwork. Like he had, he, he went that much in depth with this, you know. He kept that lie continued for years. When questioned about it, he goes, "Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. I don't have cancer. I don't know what she's talking about." And they're like, "But she's got papers." He says, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know where those came from. I, I don't know." They're like, "Okay, well, what about this? I don't know." His response was, "I don't remember for everything, for everything, everything, everything." They kept asking him, you know. Do you recognize this person? Do you recognize this? Do you recognize this? And he kept going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That was his response. I don't remember, I don't know, I don't remember. Convincingly he, lied? No. He, mm, what they did was, because it's the 70s, eh. was they brought in a uh, hypnotist. Okay? So they brought in Dr. John Watkins, an expert on hypnosis. He was also a former president of the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis and also a president for the hypnosis division of the American uh, Psychological Division. All this new age crap, they think they're gonna get this guy. Right, now, his first session, March 1st of 1979, Watkins explained that he could, he, he could use hypnosis to fill in the blanks of his memory. And immediately Bianchi was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's make that happen right now, yeah hypnotize me, <laughs> right? Now, keep in mind, IQ of 116, read all kinds of psychology books, mm. tried to impersonate a psychologist. A step ahead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what the... F Come on, guy. Wanted to be a cop, studied his ass off, but, all right, yeah, let's do that. So Watkins would put Bianchi in a trance and ask to only talk to part, which is the side of Bianchi that was not Kenny. Now, he... The, the therapist called the part part. So he'd be like, Part, can I talk to you? Blah, 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 blah. Now, when Watkins asked to take or to talk to Part, the response wasn't from Ken, but from Steve. 
So Steve, the darker, harder side of Bianchi, decided to bring to light all the murders. Had no problem confessing. Talked wow. about everything. And the entire time he implicated uh, his cousin Bono. Of course. Right, right away. He's just right like, you're going down with me, like, buddy. Not <laughs> even not even pushed to do so. He just kept doing it. Now, when finally asked what his motivation was, Steve replied that killing women was like getting uh, back at his mother, at Kenneth's mother, uh, stating that when he killed it, killed a woman, it was like killing his own mother. When asked why he hated women so much, he responded with two words. They hurt. Wow. Right. Simple as that. Jeez. So, Ken, at this point, had Watkins eating out of the palm of his hand. Um, not only did Watkins want this to be real, want this because it's going to further his career. This is going to be notoriety for Watkins. Like, look what I did. I saw this murder, you know. Um, it also just kind of played into more people's hands. So now you had what he's dubbed as, this is multiple personality disorder, right? This is schizophrenia. And uh, so he passed the torch again um, over to, let's see here, where is this other doctor's name? Oh, Ralph Allison. Now, by the time Ralph Allison came in and was talking to Steve and Steve was going through all these repressed, repressed memories and everything else like that and describing all these murders, before any of this had even happened, Bianchi had gotten to see uh, the actual like storyline of his life that his lawyer had. His lawyer had all the information about Bianchi growing up, what his life was like, what he went through, trying to make a case for the defense. Mm. And Bianchi got to take a look at this. So anything that they're going to use from And Bianchi, at this point, it's not going to get him off. It's just going to lessen his sentence, obviously. Or get him yeah. an insanity plea. Uh, true. That's what he's going for. Nah. So he already has the list of things that they Hence might the mention. Hence the playing it life. up with the multiple personalities Correct. and all this other stuff. Wow, okay. Correct. So he got to see his own file. A very cognizant person playing up multiple personalities with hopes of somehow getting away with it at least and to a degree. And having some form of at least psychological knowledge as well as police investigation knowledge. Maniacal, so got, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got the makings of an evil genius, really. So Ralph Allison, a multiple personalities expert, uh, hopped right on board. Now, the case claiming that he knew how to actually break down ego states. He was actually going to try and get Steve to be able to talk to Kent and make that whole thing work. The thing about it, though, is that Ralph Allison broke down exactly what the symptoms were and how multiple personality disorder worked so that Kenneth had a better understanding of what he was going to do to him. All he did was give Kenny the blueprints to how to figure out how to go around the entire fucking situation and play wow. it up. He gave the evil genius the tools he needed to yeah, actually construct He's like, this. here's the road map. This is how you can do it. And the entire time, Salerno and Grogan and Mangum, they're sitting there going, what the fuck? You, you know you're being played. Yeah. What is going on? Total enabling. Point, wow. At this point, Kenneth is facing death penalty in Washington, mm-hmm. or he can be extradited to, to uh, California. Which would and, make more sense since all the other crimes took place right, there. And try, yeah. and try to testify against Bono as well mm-hmm. to get a lesser sentence. Now, the thing about it, though, is that if Kenneth gets off with an insanity plea, everything that he said about Bono goes to the wayside. It no longer matters because he's considered 5150, and him implicating him is just the talk of an insane man. Mom. So Bono can get off Scott fucking free. And that's still one strangler roaming the streets. And Salerno and Grogan and the entire L.A. police department's like, no, we need him here. We need him to do this. We need to prove him wrong. We need to get that other motherfucker locked up alongside him. And they were fighting and struggling and fighting. And it got to a point where they had to bring in another psychologist. So they brought in another doctor, uh, Dr. Martin Orn. Now, 
he didn't give him the blueprint. He just went along with it. So Steve all of a sudden turned into Billy, and Billy was like the go-between Kenneth and Steve because Kenneth finally figured out, well, if, if Kenneth is the absolute good, Steve's the absolute evil. That's too cut and dry. I need something in the middle. Mm. So now you had Billy, who Billy's like, Steve showed up when I was a kid, and right after my mom started And I'm thinking suddenly me. of Split and just exactly. all the Dude, different personalities. That's exactly man. what was going on. Mm. Now, while locked up, while locked up, because you get granted certain, certain things while you're locked up. Mm. I guess in the 70s they were nicer. He... he he Nicer to, back then, holy uh, smokes. <laughs> but he got to watch or, or read uh, Sybil. You remember the book Sybil? Uh, vaguely. All about multiple personality disorders. Yeah, People yeah, yeah. With it. He was studying how to do this while doing this, while already having been read about this and being told by an, wow. pretty much an instructor that was A borderline to... instruction manual for it. Yeah. What in the hell? So the wow. entire time, the cops are biting their nails like, what are you guys doing? You're just handing them the case. You're handing him the case. You know what I mean? But Orrin was on top of his shit, had him start talking to himself, got him to respond to things that if you're in hip under hypnosis, you're not supposed to be able to respond to. You're not supposed to be able to identify people or things in the room, and he would make him do that. And that's when Horn said, bullshit, yeah. you're a liar, you got busted, but here's what you can do. The police want you to, to testify against your cousin, you'll both get life, boom, no death penalty for you. And he was immediately like, let me do that now. I will do that shit right now. So, Bono died in 2002. Mm-hmm. And, I was just looking at notes about that, yeah. And, and recently, Bianchi, not recently, but in early 2000s, late 90s, Bianchi came out and actually stated that he's innocent. All that other shit is null and void. He's innocent. And that he won't stop until the right murderers are found. And also, I believe he ended up getting married and is still currently married while in prison. And so too those, often does that happen. Those weird bitches, man, that I'm are just totally you. just uh, turned on by this sort of insanity, man. It's just mind-blowing. But at the time, that was actually the uh, the longest trial in California history, trying to take those two down. But that's that is right there. That is the story of the Hillside Stranglers. That's how they were caught. Um, if Bianchi hadn't slipped up that one last time, I don't think him and Bono would have ever been caught, and I don't think Bono would have ever continued. Wow. Genuinely, I really don't. I think that you know, it's 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 hard to say. It's all speculation. But I don't think that Bono would continue. I I think. Kenneth was definitely the killer, and he was bound to do it again. Yeah. And Bono was cleaning up his cousin's tracks, but getting to do his little sexual experiments the way that he wanted with no no harm, no foul. Yeah, exactly. A few, few repercussions and all that. And I was sitting here looking at the fact that, so in 2004, we actually had a film called The Hillside Strangler that was released in October. Um, didn't make any money. Bombed at the box office immediately, right to video and stuff like that. But then... There have been a few different uh, explorations of this on television. So there was a show called Twisted that did an episode about the Hillside Strangler and actually has one chilling, uh, according to Huffington Post, um, uh, there is an interview with Bianchi himself detailing an abduction of one of the victims. And uh, it's uh, you can find it floating around online. So if you want to see right from the horse's mouth just how nuts this guy actually was, that's floating around in the in the interwebs if you want to research this a little bit further. And um, there, it's been also covered uh, in another show called, um, uh, where is it? I was just taking a peek at it. Uh, excuse me, listeners. Okay, it's called uh, Murder Made Me Famous. Oh, and they also yeah. did an episode chronicling these these two guys as well. I've so, actually watched a few episodes. I didn't see that one. but Yeah. So there you go. And once again, if there's any continuity issues, like we discussed for time, I mean, because there's multiple variations of this, but I, I went with just the core yeah. press I could find. And actually, uh, all three episodes we've done on this have mm -hmm. been the exact same story. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, the exact same um, place I've been going for my information. Mm -hmm. So that's all in line. Yeah, and if you want to explore this further there, I mean, this is just us giving you the spark to investigate more yourselves, basically, which is really what this boils down to. Because, I mean, Chris does the research and I kind of react along with him. And, and there's a lot more to, to dive into if you really want to just mm -hmm. see how crazy all of this really was. So, but that's uh, that's our take on the Hillside Stranglers. Um, I know that this episode ran long. Uh, we did the Facebook Live in the beginning. That was, <laughs> yep. So uh, if there's some audio issues initially, uh, yes, thank you very much for, for bearing with. It was our first time trying to do a simulcast, basically. Right. But the actual core of the the back half of this case and actually seeing the law enforcement aspect. Um, yeah. Hopefully that was all pristine, and we're stoked that you tuned in this third time. Yep, and then... Uh, Next episode, we'll be covering the Alphabet Killer. It's going to be a one-hitter quitter. It's going to be uh, a little bit of the conspiracy theory I was talking about. It's going to be um, a cold case. It was never actually truly solved, so there's a lot of ins and outs. Um, and the cool part about that episode is that we'll get to make our own analysis of how we think it ended. I'm mm. not going to just focus on the one thing I want to focus on. I'm going to tell the Hence entire the case. conspiracy theory aspect. Correct. So yeah. this, one, this one, we got actually get to maybe make our own profile, have a little bit of fun with it. Cool. Um, and then after that, we're moving on to Ted Bundy. And I think um, we'll do Ted Bundy, and then maybe after Ted Bundy, I don't know, maybe we'll be able to open up for a, a, an AMA. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe get a and ask me anything going, and yeah. have people just ask us random shit. I mean, because everybody has seen Ted Bundy, everybody's been watching these Ted Bundy tapes. Mm -hmm. So if and the else, uh, extremely dead point, I'm trying to even remember the name of the Zach Zach Efron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just gonna call it Zach Bundy. Yeah, Zach so. Bundy. <laughs> and <laughs> also, and and also, if you would be interested in a bonus episode of us discussing that Hillside Strangler film, I mean, let us know. You know, reach yeah, out we're... through email or social media, whatever it may be. You know, if you want some bonus coverage about that, just giving thoughts about accuracy and all of that, let us know. Yeah, there's always going to be links to uh, the email, the Facebook, the Instagram. I mean, whatever we got going is going to be there in the uh, in the in the show description. Um, I gotta start remembering to put the damn. You gotta send me the actual link to the horror show so I can put that in there as well, mm -hmm. so, they can, so they can go to that. And oh, then, this uh, is horror show fodder for sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, hopefully, I mean, maybe we can uh, even do a swap cast. Yeah. With, with the horror show. Crossover right? cast, man. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if you're if you're interested in hearing more of a, a Fuego's silky smooth voice, <laughs> they're always doing podcasts at the horror show. So check that out. Um, I the place I find it every time is Stitcher. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's kind of my main thing, and according to the numbers, that's your fuckers' main thing too. You guys are yeah. listening to this big time on Stitcher. It's, it's that and Apple, yeah. and, and iHeartRadio actually is a big one for us. A lot right. of guys, listen, yeah. a lot of guys, a lot of people listen yes. to us on on iHeartRadio. Um, thank you to everybody. The numbers are continuing to climb, even though the amount of content isn't. So <laughs> you guys are definitely picking up the slack for us, which is cool. I appreciate that. Thanks for waiting around for procrastinating. Uh, yeah, pain. procrastinating. Yeah. Pain. <laughs> but no. Uh, the content will always be thick, though, when we do put it up, so we try to make sure that everything is correct as much as possible. I'm always impressed with your research ethic, sir. It's, a, it, it's <laughs> I, well, of my own heart because, you know, the way that I, I approach, you know, from, from a journalistic perspective as well, but I, I do like having you bring the information to me and then we bounce the ideas off back and forth without me being as completely familiarized. I think it's a good dynamic. So. Yeah, and the crazy part about my notes today is, I mean, if you look at that, there's... Uh, I brought They're extensive, written, everyone. <laughs> notes, typed out notes, written on the typed out notes, clip notes. I brought everything but sticky notes. Yeah, this was the most comprehensive, like connects. almost bringing the kitchen sink, like uh, <laughs> that he's got so far. So, <laughs> God forbid I get a laptop. Yeah. But uh, all right, so that's that's the episode. Um, 
You got anything else you want to mention? Uh, well, I mean, aside from YouTube.com slash The Horror Show channel, and then I'm also on YouTube doing stuff. Uh, it's not really of the, you know, crime or whatever variety, but in, in Fuego Tainment is where if you just search in Fuego Tainment, that's where I've been doing uh, all kinds of new film and, you know, television and, you know, a little bit of comic book coverage and stuff like that. So it is, uh, it's not in this vein, but if you're curious about other things that I do besides spooktacular, really scary real-life shizzle like this, that's, where, I, that's that, where I be. It's, it's a good way to uh, cleanse your palate after episodes like this. Which you kind of have to do, man, yeah. because this so. is a reminder of how effed up the real world actually is. And so let's escape to fun things. Watch <laughs> every this Marvel is... movie in a row. Yeah, <laughs> Star Wars. It's the year of the Star Wars. Episode 9 in December. There but, you go. All right, yeah. well... I've been uh, I've been Chris Payne. Gracias, I've been Jaime and Fuego. And now uh, you stay metal, mofo. So the next time, deuces. Latest.